Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. I, I don't know if he's dumb or sinister or both, but he seems to be <laughs> both. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle that people make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do all kinds of remarkable things at a place called Freethink, and I'm delighted to be here with you. Mm -hmm. This is episode 119. It's Monday, the 29th of October, 2018. It is the eve of the eve of All Hallows' Eve, and y'all better get ready. It's the greatest thing mm. of the year. Oh. And I'm delighted to be here with Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, Michael C. Moynihan, national correspondent of HBO's Vice News Tonight, our very good friend Anthony Fisher, who's the politics editor at Something Called Insider, isn't here today, but will return <laughs> at some point. But we do have a guest in the studio with us. We do? And it's Mr. Noah Rothman, associate oh, that, editor. That's what that is? He's a contributor at MSNBC and NBC News. And he is the author of a forthcoming book in oh, January, wow. Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. It sounds very frightening. Noah, thank you for joining us. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? Oh, wow. I didn't know Noah had written a book. I just want to say to um, our listeners, we'll love this. Is I just want to, you know, but we were talking about something before we before we started recording, and it was Spinderella's about a uh, Spinderella from uh, Salt and Pepper had a lazy eye. And I went to uh, um, Wikipedia, and they didn't have a section about lazy eye. It had a personal thing, and it said that she was in uh, the film Kazam was with uh, Shaquille O'Neal. Oh wow! And uh, she opened a beauty salon. Oh. So I just want, if anybody's wondering what happened to Spinderella, Spinderella that makes it more and, accessible, right? Yeah, totally. I know. Yeah, Get yeah, kind. And I don't know. It didn't say anything about her eyes. Still, can we still say lazy eye though? Is that wrong? I mean, well, is that wrong? I, well, I mean, was it fucked up? Oh, you're right. Now? No, no, you're right. Because it suggests that some like the eye isn't working hard enough. That you're not working hard. Yeah, yeah. frankly, yeah, yeah. You're, not, you're not bringing it's, a lot. That's right. Oh, it's, I feel all, bad. it's all true. It's yeah. So, um, hi, Camille. Hey. I bought some. I bought some jeans. I, I have some jeans for you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Michael Moynihan. Wait a smuggled. second. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. No, dude, well, it's, it's, it's the beginning of the show. I'm fucking like it's so. This has been the most <laughs> depressing week that I've had to face in a very long time. I'm very happy we have no Rothman here. He's very Monday. smart on these things. It's only and it's, Well, it was the last week. Oh, okay. And I insisted that we record tonight because we're all you know get you know ahead of the news cycle here, and I just want to also say. And I was shooting in the city in Manhattan tonight. I did have four margaritas before I came. So, um, but yeah, I'm happy. We're here. And, and Camille, uh, I brought I brought him some uh, yes. some trousers. My, Michael Moynihan was in Europe last week, and I asked him to bring some trousers to me. I ordered them on the internet. I had them delivered, sent to my fucking hotel. Delivered to his hotel. I saved some substantial sums of money purchasing these exotic denim <laughs> pants. And Michael Moynihan brought them to me in his bag so that like, I could evade the terrorists. Yeah, like yeah. Maybe that's a true story. Yeah. Maybe it's not. Face on the ass Plausible deniability. Like I, 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 I went. Likes it on the, uh, on the Well, they had them, and I went downstairs, and I'm like, is there a package for Michael? No, not one here. No, sorry. And like next time, is it Camille Foster? Yeah, I've got a pair of pants there for you. Yeah. We call them pants. We call them trousers, right? And so, I, and then there's a fucking huge box, and I'm racing to the airport. Got to break down the box, put it on this fucking asshole. This is like, a, it's amazing. It's like visiting the Soviet Union. In 1988, like every, yeah. one pair of Levi's. Yeah, yeah. I give you a Rolling Stones record for a pair of pants. Yeah, it's the crazy. Trump tariffs that I'm trying. Yeah, exactly to right. I, yeah. I can't help it. All my favorite clothes are made in Paris, and it is just a little cheaper to purchase the denim that I want. Yeah. in London. Yeah, 
This yeah. is this is how Trump is trying to ruin America for Camille. Did particular. you fly the pants first class? <laughs> there was it was in Virgin's upper class, which by the way is like so aggressive. It's called Virgin Upper yeah. Class, and it's like of it's course it the is. most British thing in the world. You know, I'm in pleb, and they're in upper class. I didn't get untouchables in the back. Yeah, I was like, I was like but I will say if we have any, we have some British listeners, we get we get um, some messages from them. I don't want to say the one highlight of my trip to. Dear old Blighty was the fact that my hotel was a lovely, lovely hotel in Shoreditch uh, in East London. And uh, there was nobody in that hotel except for me and the entire Leicester City Club who were playing Arsenal that night. And if you're British out there, you'll 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 appreciate the fact that I had breakfast. uh, He wasn't aware of it, but I had breakfast with Jamie Vardy. The great, uh, the great uh, Leicester City player who was on the England team. Wow. So there you go. Look, we have pe- people that listen all over. That's true. Speaking of which, so. I wanted to uh, shout out before uh, I get uh, too drunk on Camille's Hennessy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, that <laughs> that's racist. There I was in Las Cruces, uh, New Mexico, uh, two days ago. I think. What are we? Monday here. We're yes. doing this. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Saturday, um, at like a, a, a small uh, Gary Johnson event. Um, he's running for Senate there. And <laughs> what year uh, is it? Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, this is the only uh, part of the day that I'm going to be able to, to eat any food. So I go and I sit down next to, to a couple of dude bros who look like they must be there, mm-hmm. uh, for the Gary Johnson thing. And I say hello and you know, they're awkward and, uh, and, uh, we get to talking Wait, and, and libertarians. Uh, yeah. They're awkward. Uh, and the one wearing a Joe Rogan shirt, who was, who was, oh, pretty, yeah. who was pretty standoffish. Like yeah. his, his, uh, his friend was like, Hey, you know, it's great. Gary Johnson's great. And you know, you guys do great work at reason, this kind of stuff. And I'm doing a lot of hand uh, signals here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Joe Rogan, like, uh, sunglasses, scally bro. Um, I'm talking for a while and then he, and then he turns and says, wait a second. <laughs> I recognize your voice. Yeah. <laughs> like you didn't recognize me. Didn't recognize your no. name, or like wasn't listening no. during, the, during the name part. Yeah. But recognized the sound of my voice. It is really offensive. As a, <laughs> first of all, everyone can scream for you, except that uh, that no. uh, I don't do any funny accents. But um, uh, no, he recognized. It from, he's such a, a dedicated fifth column uh, listener. Suddenly, he like smiled for the first time. I think in months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. uh, so that's Isaac broke a, broke a hip when he smiled. I, <laughs> from an outsider's perspective, yeah. What I've heard so far is you're extremely famous. Yes. You have taste in clothing <laughs> from Europe, and yeah. you're on television a lot. No, and I'm not. Are flying <laughs> upper class. No, no. On Virgin. No, I'm, I am the most down to earth, no. accessible no. guy in this room. No, I want to point out that I didn't fly upper class. <laughs> I was very upset about <laughs> that. I was in steerage. It was very. It was like a Dickensian scene. There were people coughing and hacking, I, and, but playing the fiddle. Oh yeah, there. Everyone was Irish. Yeah. I, it was very. It was like this Titanic was sinking. It was incredible. The pogues were on the fucking thing. Anyway. So Moynihan comes strolling in here with a really uh, awesome looking, uh, crazy, thick, multi-pictured book about the old uh, Beastie Boys. And you're going to interview It's called Beastie Boys Book, and it's written by Michael Diamond, Mike D, and uh, Adam Horowitz, um, Ad-Rock. And uh, yeah, I'm not supposed to sort of talk about these things, but but tomorrow I'm be spending some of the day with them. Um in I think the last thing they're actually doing as members of the Beastie Boys, because you know Adam Yauk, uh, MCA died, I think in 2000, uh, 2009. And they're doing a book tour and um I'm very excited about it because 
most of this book is about the old kind of the first the bits that I've read in the beginning are mostly about the old punk rock days in New York. Oh. So I do want to ask them about um, things like cultural appropriation, which are something that probably was not intruding upon their lives when License Sale came out, but they have made these very sort of grand apologies about the sort of sexism of songs like Girls and about having girls in cages during the first tour and spraying them with beer. And spraying, he, didn't they have dildos also? They like, did have inflatable dildos. penises. Yeah. And it's funny that, that um, Adam Horowitz, whose father was Me Tooed um, during, yeah, his father's a very famous playwright. I mean, they, these are three kids that that uh, came from um, privilege, we would say. Um, white privilege? Yeah, yeah, white, <laughs> white privilege, yeah. Jewish privilege, is that right? Can we say that? Um, yeah, they're three Jewish kids from Manhattan who, you know, had parents that did interesting things, and his father was was Me too and, and um, Adam Horowitz actually denounced his father and said, oh. yeah, recently. Um, and they were working together on a play, which is kind of an interesting thing. i talk to them tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but he married Kathleen Hanna, um, that some of our listeners will know, as the feminist, uh, the sort of head of the feminist band uh, Bikini Kill from the from right. the from the early nineties in, in uh, Washington State, so he's he they're pretty woke. I'm, but it's I'm kind of interesting to see the see the transformation of people whose you know identity and and that first record that made them so famous. You know, it it changes, and you have to just change to, the times. Just today, I saw uh, a tweet from. Uh, Axel Rose, who I think should be renamed Woke Axel Rose, because no, you're kidding me. His his Twitter feed, it was like it was a picture of his ballot, and he's like vote Democrat, you know, hashtag yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and he's uh, and he's like calling out uh, Trump as a racist. And I'm like, you Axel, remember one in a million, right? Axel Rose, I love one in a million. It's one of the uh, greatest uh, songs. Uh, you know, could be seen as as racist. <laughs> you think? <laughs> you think? I don't know this song. Like, uh, oh a, my God! Yeah, you've got yeah. a new favorite song. Uh, what, it's a very it? offensive song. What There's a, song? a lot of words that you would like in there. What's the song called? It's called One in a Million. One in a Million. Uh, which I have a whole theory about that I won't uh, bore us with. Uh, I mean, I only now. know two Guns N' Roses songs: Welcome to the Jungle and November Rain. Which <sighs> yeah, you're such November a trash. Nothing lasts forever. But like all these guys, <laughs> in the sweet November Rain. It was inevitable. Yeah. Very white. Oh yeah. yeah. We, we can cut that out in post. No, uh, we're gonna keep that. But no, all these dudes and uh, Jane's Addiction dudes too. You and I, uh, 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 drunken late at night, will uh, tweet each other uh, love poems about uh, Jane's yeah, Addiction, sure. uh, crazy uh, uh, homophobia and whatever stuff that would not be acceptable today. But all these dudes who came yeah. up in the, the mid late eighties, all of their early stuff is as anti-woke as it gets. And now they're all like themselves. Well, before we get into like the stories of the day and, you know, before Noah walks out on us, um, <laughs> I, I will just say this is one of the things that, you know, you, you don't realize how quickly the culture transformed on that issue, mm. on the issue of, you know, gay rights and gay marriage and things like that. And, and, and you know, and honestly, thank God that it did. Yeah. And, you know, it's we are a thousand times better as a society for it. But you go back... You know, it's it's insane. I mean, like, you know, I know that the, the, those guys in the Beastie Boys, they come from, they went to St. Anne's and very progressive schools and had progressive parents and the rest of it. And there was something in the kind of gait, in the walk, in the kind of swagger when like homophobia was completely acceptable. And you see it in the old lyrics and the same thing is true of Axl Rose. I don't 
it doesn't surprise me that he's woke Axl Rose now because I don't know that those people believed it as such at the time, but it was something that you grew up with, which was like, that was an insult that you used. And there are people that say this thing these days, which I think is quite frustrating because it doesn't actually get to the nub of the issue is that being PC, for instance, is just good manners. That's not true. And we know it's not true. It is taken on a very different kind of cloying and kind of, you know, controlling way that we speak, et cetera. But there are, in the early days, I actually, I think I might have talked to you about this in like 2009 or 10. I wanted to pitch a book about how PC was over. And God, how, thank God I didn't. I mean, how wrong would I have been? <laughs> the because there was, there was a PC. clearing of the, and you know, I'm sure Noah can speak to this because he's uh, written a book about it or is finishing a book about it, maybe. Um, but oh, it's done. It's done. Okay, good. So we want to talk to you about this too. But Do in January. It is an interesting thing Do. because, Do. you know, I, I did actually kind of have a, a bit of that attitude was that I'm, it is a good thing. That, you know, that you to say that, yeah, they say the word fag is not something that is socially acceptable. That's fine. I think that's good. And because we, we've kind of recast society. And it was funny to, I think my mother, bless you, mom, because I know you listen. Um, you know, when I was 18, if I said, oh, these are two guys that I know and they're dating or they're getting married, she'd be like, what? They're getting married? Are you kidding me? If I said that to my mother now, wouldn't bat an eye and would be like, oh, great. They, we, that sea change was good. And then we went way too but the far. Controlling thought police. The controlling thought police yeah, thing is the, is the bad thing. And it, all, it all gets thrown into the same basket these days. And I think conservatives are very bad about this because, you know, I don't think it is PC. So that is actually probably the wrong term for it. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we recast some of the way that we spoke about this stuff. I, I said this at the time, and I, I still believe it's true, is that Donald Trump's, uh, those of us who were opposed Donald Trump during the campaign did so because his, um, th the way he eschewed conventions particularly like PC saying that this is, you know, not it goes beyond just being polite, um, has verged into racism, verges into, into uh, you know, sentiments that we would call just antisocial. And that'll ratify PC and mm -hmm. make it make the totalitarian controlling aspects of it become viewed not just as uh, as being polite and a necessity to control, you know, uh, excessive speech, but also as a check on otherwise socially unacceptable thoughts of yeah. people who are racist and are who are uh, homophobic and what have you. No, let me ask you this. I, I just want to, if we can kind of get into the news of the day now. Um, you work for commentary. Uh, <laughs> you're a commentary, a place I've written uh, for commentary a number of times. So have I. Uh, yeah, you have? Really? Yeah. Really? Oh, two or three times. Okay. I've done a bunch of book reviews for commentary. And Mostly about how the neocons are wrong and they've got with blood them. on their hands. <laughs> so commentary. That's how open-minded we are. <laughs> was, uh, the AJC used to publish commentary. It's a Jewish magazine and sort of, it is. I mean, the AJC is no longer involved, right? No. But but it is, it is Jewish in its DNA. And we had uh, something this week which... Um, was profoundly depressing and but not entirely unexpected because this stuff happens um, that an anti-Semitic uh, shooter went into a synagogue in Pittsburgh where by the way I, I will say our, our our previous guest twice I think twice guest Barry Weiss our friend Barry Weiss who was bat misfit at that at that um, uh, synagogue give me a sense of that of, of what your initial reaction to this and then the kind of fallout 
and the fallout, which is kind of finger pointing, blaming this culture that's been created by X, Y, and Z. I mean, my own thoughts on this, which are fairly boring compared to yours um, as a non-Jew, is that this is not surprising to me. Well, I rather doubt that I'm probably the best subject for this because I am not plugged into the Jewish community. My father's Jewish. My mother's Irish Catholic. I was not raised in any sort of synagogue right? or any okay. church. Yes, I'm, I'm not secular, but non-sectarian. So I don't have any sort of finger on the pulse of the Jewish community. My impulse in these moments is to withdraw completely from society and not discuss it because yeah. mm. in general, um, there is a distinction between the online world of uh, politicized opinion, which we all inhabit on a daily basis, and the rest of the planet, which I don't think is is interested in litigating these issues. Um, and that's sort of... So my, my instinct was that this one was so traumatic, traumatic to the extent that Orlando was traumatic, and that it sort of felt like the social compact was coming apart. Mm. Um, and there was going to be a much more significant fallout than I wanted to participate in, so I withdrew. Uh, I haven't seen it materialize, which is heartening, but at the same time, this is part of uh, something that we've seen accelerate. I can think, can you can you years. can you clarify that statement? You said you were concerned that the social compact might fall apart. Yeah, and this is something that I, I write about in the book, and I have a piece coming out with uh, my editors, uh, you know, uh, Imprimatur, that I will be publishing in Washington Examiner about the um, the new romanticization of political violence in America. Um, political violence, and by which I mean mass revolutionary action in the streets as opposed to an individual being terroristic. Uh, Elias Kennedy, mobs acting yes. like mobs. Hmm. Um, the reptilian brain taking over. That sort of thing we've seen dormant for a generation. It's coming back. And it's coming back as a result of politicians, influencers, members of society who should know better entertaining this sort of philosophy as something that's um, that's romantic. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Occupy Wall Street was a violent movement when it was embraced by Nancy Pelosi. When Barack Obama said these people are just like Martin Luther King Jr. And they're vilified for the reason that they're challenging the system. And when you uh, say violent, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, it had already exploded out of its bivouacs and was destroying property and was setting fires to cars and was attacking police officers. It was demonstrating anti-Semitism, overt anti-Semitism uh -huh. uh, in the international banking You're saying th thing. these things were happening at, <clears throat> As at they were embraced by, by Democrats. Sure. Um, fast forward a few years and you had politicians like the president saying Republicans are the enemies of Hispanics. The, the vice president saying Republicans are going to put African-Americans back in chains. Uh, that Republicans were were responsible when schizophrenics um, exacted terrorism. And then you saw Republicans begin to say, well, listen, we're going to be vilified no matter what. So we might as well embrace this dark id that we have that we're being blamed for. And that was the 30 percent or so of the Republican electorate that endorsed Donald Trump early on because Donald Trump was being this uh, this figure of ill repute that they had been labeled for so long yeah. uh, and had not advanced. So they essentially, I think, and I'm not excusing it, but I think it's sadly justified, is that they decided to be this caricature that they'd been made to be. And then you had somebody who was saying, okay, well, I, I hope my supporters punch this person in the face and I'll pay your legal bills. And from there, we saw actual street violence. We saw it in Chicago. We saw it in Portland. And, and by which I mean mobs attacking mobs. San Diego, uh, San Jose. Are any of those places circumstances where Trump supporters were attacking people? Uh, Trump supporters and a Trump supporter initially threw the first punch. 
in March of I think it was March 10th of 2016. Right. Where he attacked. You mean a, at the uh, at the at, uh, at, a rally. at the event? And what right, we saw after that was Trump supporters being attacked. And right. Yeah. And from there we saw something that I think we should have spent a lot more attention on, which was uh, white nationalists, proto-fascists, rallying under fascist banners, being mobbed and attacked by proto-Bolsheviks, by people who are essentially communists. Right. And they, there was an event in 2016 where a permitted rally of, uh, of white nationalists gathered in Sacramento, and they had advertised this rally. Mm-hmm. And there was a group called um, By Any Means Necessary, uh, headed by a woman named Yvette Falarka, a 47-year-old diminutive middle school teacher, glasses and bangs, who um, organized a street fight. And then these people went to war with each other. They knifed each other in the streets. There were at least two critical injuries. And I think there was something too evocative of Weimar for us to actually talk about it, just sort of let it pass. And a year later, we got Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. There was also uh, <clears throat> one or two in Orange County as well, I recall. Like there were a few. Knife, yeah. knife fights in the street. Knife fights between, between racists. Aryans and uh, and like Antifa. And Antifa. Uh, and uh, the, in the Sacramento uh, event, California police and the state of California Justice Department blamed Yvette Falarka. She was charged with incitement. She was arrested. California uh, police officers testified they started it, not the permitted rally. It was the opposite in Charlottesville, not saying who's to blame matters. But because we chose not to confront this, we got that. Yeah. I- and similarly, what passed through the national consciousness like an apparition was the attempted murder of half the Republican conference. Uh, we just didn't talk about it. Ronald and then Baseball. a year later, uh-huh. we got the pipe bombs, the attempted pipe bombs. We got lucky twice. We're not going to get lucky every time. Somebody needs to confront these things. And that's what I hope to do in the book. Obviously, we're having this conversation in the context of what CNN described in a headline. It's 72 hours in America, three hate-filled crimes, three hate-filled suspects. There was the pipe bombs, which have been mentioned already. There was the synagogue shooting, which happened on Sunday, which we've been talking about. Um, But there was also a shooting at a Kroger. And was this in Kentucky? Kentucky? I believe it was. Where two black people, both in their 60s, were shot by a man who had apparently tried to break into a a black, predominantly black, historically black church nearby before he actually shot these people in the parking lot. I don't know if we actually know much more about his motives. Uh, I do know that from the early reporting, it seems this is someone who had some history of mental illness. Um, But in either case, we're having this conversation against the backdrop of those three events. And much of the conversation has had a lot to do with Trump's responsibility in helping to cultivate a particular kind of environment today. Um, And the fact that the president has, as you mentioned, Noah, at times endorsed explicitly political violence. But the environment that we find ourselves in is one where, I mean, the president has made some statements recently. He has suggested that there shouldn't be any space for political violence. And then, of course, he makes the turn to say that the media has a role to play in helping to create a different sort of environment by covering me in a much more honest way. And the, the perspective on offer from much of the media establishment, and particularly at some outlets more than others, is that the president himself is largely responsible for helping to create an environment in which something like this could happen. And the one thing I wonder about is the fact that this isn't so new. We've certainly had political violence in the United States throughout the decades, the many decades that the United States has existed. But 
in recent years, under Barack Obama, we saw some political violence as well. There were several pretty high-profile shootings um, where police officers were targeting both Dallas and Baton Rouge, which were vaguely connected to Black Lives Matter. So it's not as though this sort of thing has only begun to happen under the Trump regime. So it it's difficult. I'm, I'm not asking... Presidential rhetoric is, is different. Um, yeah. To, to preemptively semi-answer a question. Uh, Good. This, a question this, I haven't asked and this, wasn't sure what I was going for. This <laughs> morning, if I'm not mistaken, in a tweet whose subject was the Pittsburgh massacre in the synagogue. Uh-huh. The subject that was the reason for the tweet, um, the president uh, said, you know, at, at this time of, of great national upset, it's very important to realize that fake news is the enemy of the people. Sure. He depends on, for his political um, power, constituency, potency, he depends on whipping up um, hatred for an, an other. And he'll do this even at a moment of high national ten, uh, tension. This is disgraceful behavior. And that's not something that we have seen in any modern president. I don't sure. think I, 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 look, I, th- I think that's exactly right. But uh-huh. I, I, the one thing I would I would slightly disagree on. Not really disagree because you didn't. You actually didn't address this, but it, it is different with presidential rhetoric, and it is different when you have a president who is so dependent upon his base responding to this type of rhetoric. What we see in Pittsburgh is something that's that's kind of depressed me in some ways, because I mean there are differences between pipe bomb man and white nationalist man. Uh-huh. And the, the, the difference is, is to think in any way that this person probably would have been okay if there wasn't Donald Trump, I think is, is magical thinking. And when you say this person, you're referring uh, to the synagogue. I'm sure the synagogue. Sure. And, and, and who was a I mean, vehement if, critic of Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, he was a great, well, well, he was a critic of Donald Trump because he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't go far enough. Yeah, he didn't yes. go far enough. He said Donald, the J- Donald Trump. Was yeah. Solve, solve the JQ. I mean, you see that the Jewish question, you see these people like the Laura Loomers and these fucking nutcases that are out there and, and kind of laundered into the mainstream conversation by people like Steve King. And by the way, we should give credit where credit's due because, you know, like the, the Weekly Standard denounced Steve King and said he's a white nationalist and we should have nothing to do with a guy like this. I interviewed Steve King very briefly about immigration in 2015 and he walked away from me. And he's a nasty type. Were you doing your senior Wenceslas? Uh, well, I did it in the accent. He, 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 he pepper sprayed me. But I, 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 was, I also was uh, with... Um, uh, the head of the FPO in Austria, the party, the far right party that was created by a member of the Waffen SS. And Heinz Christian Straka, the head of the party, told me during an interview, I reported this at the time, nobody paid attention, uh, that he told me I had met with Representative King. This is in 2015. This came out as a news story recently that he's been hanging out with the FPO guys. He's been doing this for years. I mean, so so th- these guys are deeply, to use the sort of language of the day, problematic. But you go on Twitter and you see these people writing these columns that are from the gut that they just kind of thought of five minutes ago. And you realize nobody knows anything about the history of anti-Semitism, not only in this country, but in the world. I mean, Robert Wistrick, one of the great historians of anti-Semitism, who died in 2015, um, wrote a book called The Longest Hatred. 
This is nothing new to Jews. This is nothing new to people who have paid attention to this stuff. A shooting at a synagogue is gruesome, horrible, violent, and the most reprehensible thing one can imagine, especially when you consider the youngest person to have died was in their mid-50s. These are people who survived the Holocaust are being gunned down by some fat, mouth-breathing scumbag on gab. This is, these are, these are horrifying people. But it's, not only is it nothing new, but you know, you have the Holocaust uh, Museum shooting, which by the way, the guy apparently also tried to target uh, the Weekly Standard. Because uh, he on a list, yeah, he was on a list. I mean, this is what 2009, 2010. It wasn't Donald Trump's rhetoric. The thing about the thing about being Jewish in the world in this country is to forever be an outsider, right? You're you're an interloper in the culture. Number one, and number two, you're both things. If you're on the left. These are, you know, the the rich Jews that blah, blah, blah. I mean, you see this in Jeremy Corbyn and these types of people. And if you're on the right, the Jews are the people that drove the Bolshevik revolution. How many people in Russia in 1917 were Jewish? Almost all of them, right? You cannot win. And this is not a hatred that goes away. It comports with every political view. And that's the great misfortune of being Jewish and having to deal with this type of hatred, the, the 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 idea that this is something that that was was born from Donald Trump's rhetoric when you know the, the one of his advisors is his son-in-law who's Orthodox, yeah, that doesn't mean much. You can be an anti-Semite and have have him in the family. But I, if I look at everything that's happened there, you know, the L.A., I remember the, the shooting in L.A. of the kid that was like a, like a preschool. The, in, the incel kid? Uh, no, there was a, an anti-Semitic shooting in L.A. I guess it was in the 2000s at some. I mean, look. The L.L. flight? No, no, that was that was right after 9-11. I mean, I mean, look, and that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn laying wreaths at, you know, um, memorials for people in Black September, which is essentially was the PLO had a fake front group. Black September, who committed the atrocities in the Munich Olympics in 72. And Jeremy Corbyn, the head of, you know, the hard left head of the current Labour Party, who could very well be the next prime minister, laying a wreath of this. That's not good either, people. And this is not something that is unique to one side or another. It is, as Robert Wistrick said, the longest hatred. A few thoughts on all of that. So um, among the theses in the book is not that, you know, we talked about how horrible everything is. The thesis of the book is that everything's pretty good, actually. One of the truths that really frustrates the, the modern social justice activists is the notion that there's been substantial progress. When somebody walks into a synagogue and shoots everybody, uh-huh. when Dylan Roof walked into a, a black church and sure, killed everybody, sure, sure. they anticipate that their actions will ignite some sort of a revolution, Race will, will uh-huh. shock the consciousness and allow them to yeah. understand how horrible these people are. And it doesn't happen because within the, the last 50 years, the progress on racial progress, on uh, uh, progress for homosexuals and just about every minority in this country has been staggering. We deployed the 101st Airborne on American soil to enforce Brown 50 years ago. <laughs> well, 60 years ago at this point. Um, it's unfathomable, the progress that we've had. And it's, it, it's that is rejected by a certain segment of activist um, social justice advocates because of, I guess, some sort of a sense of chauvinism in, in, in what they the, what their current circumstances are, but also their reason d'etre. They have to have this kind of existential threat in order to generate the kind of enthusiasm that they thrive on. As for the anti-Semitism thing, and I was talking about this on the podcast today, the United States is a remarkable invention for the Jewish people. When I was... 
I guess three years ago, something like that, I was sitting with my father um, and to my disgrace, uh, I had kind of the end of history conversation with him. I had never experienced real anti-Semitism. Sort of the joking elbow in the ribs kind of thing, because I was, you know, uh, half Jew means you're full Jew in the kind of uh, town in which I grew up in. But it wasn't. Yeah, Noah Rothman is a bit. (laughs) My middle name's Christopher. So (laughs) no one's asking. So uh, (laughs) so I and I was like, you know what? We're we're sort of at the end of history when it comes to the anti-Semitism thing in this country and Israel has fulfilled its its mission. It is a safe, secure state. It is not going anywhere. Jews have it pretty good. And he had to tell me, you know, in, in sort of drawn tones that you don't remember people with numbers on their arms walking around. I do. And you'll you'll learn soon enough. And he was right. Because within, I guess, six months, we started seeing the kind of assaults uh, on social media that people who were anti-Trump and who had a Jewish last name like I did got, which were Emails and tweets from anonymous people sending you caricature drawings of Jews getting executed. And by all accounts, from what I've heard from people like Jonah Goldberg and and, and others, like the, the that amount or Ben Shapiro, uh, the amount of that uh, like feedback just went from if it was at a one or a two uh, in 2015, it went to 175. Yeah. Uh, July and August of 2015 was when it hit me and it went all the way up and it really didn't decline until Donald Trump won the nomination, then everybody kind of paired it back. But I, for about a year, I experienced that. And uh, it was a real shock to the system. This was the kind of thing that I had never experienced before. And I didn't think it was real. I didn't think it uh-huh. existed anymore. And what, give us a visceral sense of what, what you're talking about. What would you get? What was the volume? What was a, what's an example? Oh, I, I mean, like, well, like I said, at the, at the peak of it, you were getting these threats and these, uh, and, and blogs, people write about you on blogs and they tell you where you lived and they look you up and they talked about your family. And it was really quite intimidating. And all of us thought about arming ourselves and getting police protection. Um, but it was a narrow segment of society so that you could successfully block just about all of them on Twitter if you were really adamant about it. Um, you know, you were able to trace back emails and all of us sort of felt a little bit safer after the president won. Initially, we were all very scared and we thought we were going to have to get armed guards and you know, take serious proactive measures to defend ourselves. But it sort of it ebbed away once the election was over to the extent that it felt like it was kind of a mirage. Obviously, it wasn't. Um, but it was a narrow segment of people. Um, so I don't want to exaggerate the problem and say that it's societal or that it's existential. I don't think it is. And it's not like it is in Europe for Jews, where there really is a genuine threat of history coming right back. Uh, I don't think it's like that in the United States. It could be soon. We have to be vigilant for it. But I don't want to suggest that that's the way it is today. I don't think it's it. I don't think it is. Here's my question uh, for the group. And I'm thinking about this in the context of George Soros. I wrote a piece for The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago about the kind of renewed vigor of uh, Soros's boogeyman and how it compares to the vilification of the Koch brothers uh, in, in maps pretty well on that. George Soros and Charles Koch uh, actually have uh, uh, a whole lot in common. There's always going to be a market for a boogeyman, uh, you know, who's uh, pulling uh-huh. the puppet strings, sure. has all the money and is paying for all the protests. I mean, the, sure. the Tea Party was blamed on the Koch brothers by people in the Obama White House while they're like ripping up their IRS records. So a lot of it maps <laughs> it maps on it's a very similar thing, but there, I think that there's also something extra, the extra sauce in it, and it's something that that I uh, witnessed in all my uh, friends when we lived in Central Europe in there in the 1990s, because Soros was incredibly active over there um, at a time when governments were small, 
uh, fragile. They're moving from communism uh, to capitalism. And so he would pour in $50 million for an open society, uh, something. He would start a Central Europe uh, University in Prague, which he was kicked out uh, pretty early by uh, Václav Klaus, which is an early indicator that Klaus is a, much more of a dickbag than a lot of American <laughs> libertarians and conservatives uh, ever had any idea about until it was far too late. But um, that there's an extra sauce to it. Uh, now, because he embodies the exact opposite of Steve Bannon. He is he he is literally a globalist. It's not even just like, oh, you can't say globalist because that's that's vaguely anti-Semitic. No, George Soros is a globalist and will also talk about it in his own vernacular. Like maybe I'm part of the problem because I'm an international Jewish financier and and taking down currencies. Maybe uh, maybe I'm uh, uh, exciting anti-Semitism too because he's that kind of personality. But the rise of nationalism, which we've seen this week in, in Brazil, uh -huh. um, that Moynihan's been reporting on in Europe, and then now we've seen in this country to a degree that I think surprised all of us. Um, nationalism. So the, here's the form of the question, and uh, to Moynihan maybe uh, uh, specifically, is there such a thing as a nationalism? Uh, expressed as a populist political movement, not just like, hey, I, I, I love my country. It's 1984. Fuck the commies. The Olympics are great, which is my kind of nationalism. Man. Yeah. Um, but like nationalism is expressed in a political party that's changing the dynamic. Is there such a thing as that type of nationalism that doesn't need find and point fingers at, at the very least, at an enemy? Because there's going to be a failure of the program. So it has to be an, an internal enemy. And it's not much of a transitive property here, isn't an obvious enemy of nationalist Jews. Yeah, uh, look, uh, no, there aren't movements like that that are successful right now. I mean, if you can find one, I'd be happy to hear it. But but it's usually like you will see more. You will see more anti-Semitism. Yes. I mean, in a populist nationalist movement. Sure. Than you will see in the body politic. But wouldn't, every time. Uh, of but course, wouldn't I mean, Donald Trump's Make America Great Again movement precisely check that box. I've never heard the president use any sort of explicitly anti-Semitic rhetoric. I'm not talking about that. Uh, uh, no, 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 but, not explicit, uh, but implicit. But even, it, even, it, even to the degree that it's implicit, it's the notion that the word globalists and the, 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 the invocation of the name Soros are inherently anti-Semitic. In December 2015, he to speak before the Republican Jewish Conference, and he said, you people won't support me because I don't want your money. You're a bunch of negotiators, just like I am. We're all negotiators. Uh -huh. he, maybe he didn't know what he was saying, but everyone heard what he was saying. Sure. Who wanted to hear what, exactly what that. I'm not pointing in this case. Yeah. I'm not yeah. talking about Trump. No, I'm but talking on the, about, it, it, yeah. I'm just talking about a, a, a movement. Those movements, by definition, I think. Th I think that's true. Well, I think and, that's. I, I was. I was actually trying to draw attention to the fact that there is a distinction between the two things. Look, I, I, look, and it's also a distinction to be made that. Not every Soros critic is an anti-Semite, but sure. every anti-Semite is a Soros critic. I don't think Donald Trump is an anti-Semite <laughs> either. Yeah, I mean, like you know, in in Europe, if you can find a, a nationalist movement that's been successful in any way that doesn't have an external enemy, I've not found it. I mean, I I've, I look for a political, a modern political movement that doesn't have an external enemy besides sort of. Uh, I mean, internal enemy. Internal's Inter normal. I mean, internal. Internal, internal is saying that you know Democrats are destroying this country because of X, Y, and Z, uh -huh. that, you know, that these people coming in are bringing sort of diseases, which by the way, it, it, that's, it, that, that was a thing on, on Fox and Friends this morning, which I, f I find actually really repulsive. That's actually the, the, the rock bottom for me. And, the, and when I was like, yeah, I was like really annoyed by that because, you know, there was, there was a, there was a guy who in, in, during the 
Nazi years named Fritz Hippler. Close enough to Hitler, right? Fritz Hippler made a couple of films, and the one that he made that is most famous is the uh, Evigiuda, the Eternal Jew, or people used to say the Wandering Jew, the Eternal Jew, and it is the most anti-Semitic film ever made. It was shown uh, to troops before they deployed in the East, and the first thing that you see in that film is Jews compared to rats. There's a, the rats crawling over everything. They're bringing bringing disease into the country. It's an old trope. Does it mean that people are are, are ref- Referencing that, no, but it is an instinct of people that think of that kind of outside problem. The other thing about this, though, is that when people say that Donald Trump is is because of Donald Trump, this stuff is you know, at a really really high level now. Maybe uh, I don't know how to prove this or disprove this. But the one thing I will say to kind of counter that in in a small way is that this is happening all over the world right now. Uh-huh. And there's no Donald Trump in Norway. There's no Donald Trump in Denmark. There's no Donald Trump in Brazil. What is it about the world right now, the sort of economic state of the world right now, the political state of the world right now? And it might be, just be this thing, that we got kind of lazy and slack and bored with the fact that people disagree with this stuff. And there might be some utility in using the word elite. I loathe it. And I've been talking to people in, the, in, in Western Europe, far right people that oh, elites, 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 Donald Trump, elites, elites, elites. But there is some sense when you talk to people in the middle of the Tyrolean Alps, or you talk to somebody in Skåne in Sweden or Leeds outside of Leeds, that like these people made decisions for us about immigration, about the state of our culture. And of course, that's a, that's an entirely separate conversation. Is Can one say that I don't want my culture to change and not be a race. It's, a, it's an interesting and, and complicated uh, question. But there is this thing that is much bigger than Donald Trump, where people are at this moment in kind of, you know, democratic history in the Western democracies, where they're a little annoyed by a lot of things. And Soros is a great bogeyman for it because they're, I don't think that, you know, it's a rude thing to say, but they're not clever enough to understand what has happened and why it's happened. But if you present to them this person who's this evil mustache twisting globalist, some of them make three jumps and say, well, he's a Jew too. You know, these Jews have been doing, but there's a lot of people that don't do that and just say like, whoa, God, this, I, you know, who is this guy that's funding I mean, all this stuff? Philosophically, he is the opposite of Steve Bannon. Yes. Steve Bannon has, has targeted him as part of his little European uh, mm-hmm. club of assholes that he's putting together. Out By the way, I have a, I have uh, in two weeks on the weekly show, a weekly vice show called, um, vice on HBO. I have a 15 minute piece that we've finished today, actually picture oh, locked in today, uh, about Bannon's Europe and about Bannon's attempt at influencing Europe. And we went to meet a lot of people who are Brits, Italians, et cetera, who, who are, uh, um, I was with a Belgian guy the other day who, um, like, he gets it. And it's the interesting thing is that none of them like Donald Trump because he's a bit too crass for a lot of these kind of, you know, Europeans that are members of European Parliament and members of sort of small parties. They're like, it's very American what you guys do, your fucking, you know, reality TV shows and your, you know, mouth-breathing president. But we love who he is, that he says the things that he believes and people cheer. We can't do that here. It's a hate crime. A number of people have said to me, it's just like, I can't even count it at this point. Santrande asked this question on Twitter, and it's the question that has been preoccupying everybody at my magazine, I think, for about two years. And that is, when is little L liberalism going to have an answer to the question that has been answered now by voters just about everywhere on every continent? 
which is a, a sharp critique of liberalism that is not self-serving. That is not these people are, are you know, mouth-breathing idiots who don't know what's good for them. Yeah. Uh, and I don't have a response to that, but I do have a very... I guess, controversial answer to it, and that is to fight and defeat it. I honestly don't care what your gripe is with your grievances that allows you to endorse protectionism, chauvinist nationalism. Because you're wrong. Because it's because I I really just want to defeat you. Uh, And that has made people very angry and frustrated with me. And they think that I'm trying to extirpate these people from the earth and purge them and put them in camps. No, I'm talking about ideological That's just what Kurt Schilling wants to do. (laughs) So how does does ideological combat work? I want the bloody sock to be a bloody uniform. need to be purged. But how do you do that if you don't understand why people are arriving at those bad well, both Republicans and Democrats have an answer to that. Republicans and Democrats have histories to which they can appeal. The extirpation of the birther, birther, bircher movement from, <laughs> from very similar in the birther extirpation yeah. <laughs> without a difference um, from uh, the conservative movement was a methodical effort to um, to isolate and stigmatize a conspiratorial mindset without isolating and stigmatizing the individuals who are attracted to those ideas. That but you can't do that now, can you? I think you can. The uh, On the Democratic side, too, the isolation and the removal of communists from the organized labor movement in the late 1940s is a model to which they can appeal to identify ideas that are bad for our movement. Not that you have no right to believe them, not that they don't have some ideas that are good and we can integrate them into our program, what have you, but they are making us unattractive to the people we need to appeal to, the people who have power. That is the method that I would recommend for identifying and isolating these ideas because I don't believe you can take the whole package, the whole nationalist package, and integrate into a healthy Western society. Eventually, I think it becomes toxic. So what does that look like yeah. in practice? I don't, I don't quite know. Well, the question, I mean, to, to, to Camille's point, and like, I don't want to step on your question, it's like, okay. it's, a, it's a very, well, no, it's the same, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, how do you do that in practice um, in 2018? Because when you're Jay Lovestone in, you know, the labor movement in the 40s, former communist who kind of came out of this, and your Bill Buckley, um, isolating and then sort of expelling the Birchers, you kind of controlled the narrative then. I mean, National Review was the house organ of conservatism and there were some sort of adjuncts to it. Uh But now, I mean, you expel Alex Jones from Twitter. That's the version today. Or, you know, they create, like, they they, they create gag. No, it doesn't stop him. To borrow a phrase from Tom Friedman, the world is flat. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's possible to continue to project your message. Please don't borrow anything from Tom Friedman. Steve Bannon might be. Steve Bannon became a, a albatross around the neck of this this ideology it just became he became a uh, liability he wasn't so much somebody who was beyond the pale he still evinced the the ideas and the sentiment and more importantly the bravado that this this movement is really attracted to but his approach and his style became a liability so he was removed and he no longer has the kind of authority that he had a year ago i think that much is true but But i I also but he's not gone either i also think that the influence well robert walsh was never gone but i also worry that the influence of steve bannon is generally overstated I mean, the the notion that Steve Bannon was the architect of this particular election, he's the reason why right. Donald yeah. Trump run, yeah. so far as I'm concerned, is pretty absurd. Um, and beyond he that, it. he was the editor-in-chief of Breitbart, but if it wasn't him, then it would have I been mean, someone else, and be Breitbart clear, continues to this day. So in ostracizing Steve Bannon, 
what what does that mean? Well, look, Alex Bercherism Jones, never disappeared. And in, in CPAC in 2010, you had Bercher's there who were saying, you know, I interviewed the, the guy. Yeah, we're I was the, there. We're the, the new yeah. friendly, happy face of Bercherism. We're not about fluoride anymore. They literally dropped. Do you remember I did that for a reason? I'm I just saying to the that guy, in a, yeah. in a so contemporary an environment, it's very different to be banished from MSNBC and CNN and Fox News to not be able to make your way to those particularly those gilded organs of public opinion and and officially sanctioned thought. And to simply be someone who's on the internet, making a name for yourself, uh, look, I creating, think, creating yeah. a space combat where you can is share also your about persuasion and not just which isolation. is which is why I asked how you can hope to win without understanding how people have arrived at those perspectives. Because if you want to persuade me, I sort of need to understand what levers to pull in order to get you to agree with my perspective. And the challenge that I've been posing for a very long time with respect to Trumpism and his ascent is the general, the general approach has been to demonize Trump and his followers to, to suggest that the reason why he's winning is because he's type tapping into this dark id of racism and anti-Semitism in America, in the American populace. And it's white resentment that has allowed Donald Trump to win when quite frankly, when I look around, it's hard for me to see that that is precisely what's the animating force of the Trump regime. When I, when I watch the, the campaign rally, or I say campaign rally, cause it's effectively the same thing, but the recent rally where he's speaking and he's talking about these bombings and these other events that have happened recently, the people in the audience applaud when he says, we've arrested this person. There's no room for this kind of thing amongst us. They applaud ferociously. And they also applaud when he says, but the lame media needs to do a better job of not lying about me. At a minimum, I think it's certainly true that it's crass and it's in poor taste for Donald Trump to use this tragedy to talk about the media in that way. But when I look at what is happening on CNN in particular, let's say I'll call that out because I don't know that anyone here has any official affiliation with them and I won't get you in trouble. But CNN in particular, especially because packages were sent there, like has taken this entire thing very personally. And it's difficult to find a panel discussion there where somewhat where everyone on the panel isn't universally taking deep and profound offense at everything the president does, where it's characterized as though the only thing that the president has said in response to this is the media needs to straighten up and fly right. I, I'm not saying that the president is good. I'm not saying that he's been an eloquent spokesperson for America in the face of tragedy. He's not that guy and he was never going to be that guy. No, he's, he's, he's but, bad. But, yes, yeah, he's, he's actually bad. bad. He's, but the, but the, bad but the other version yeah. of this where the president is solely responsible for creating an environment it's, it's, in it's which a, this could it's happen. It's a straw man. And we, and it's, a, it's a straw man, but it is also the dominant narrative amongst it's various. It's a pop section for sure of the, but, of but the we, national. We media. need not get overly derailed by that. I think I, I, I don't know that it's overly derailed to call attention to the fact that most prominent journalists and comment and people in the commentariat are advancing some narrative like that. And I say is most it, in a, in a, is it possible that, that everybody's wrong in this in the sense that I think that, that, so, that you're, that you're right about that. But I, I mean, like, one of the things I like that I, I kind of, I'm a little nervous about saying because 
you know, I, I don't like the fact, by the way, that we live in a time that I'm nervous about saying half the things that I want to say well, that aren't, I don't think, particularly controversial. I'm, I'm they terrified. They say more about you than everyone. No, I mean, I these are like, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm, I'll tell you what I'm going to say that is, I don't think controversial, but I, I imagine that if anyone kind of sort of clued in on would drag me on Twitter or whatever. Hennessy is delicious. Is that Hennessy is delicious. Um, <laughs> is that on the other end of this, I think that we have to calm down Slightly. Mm. And the reason I think we have to calm down slightly is that this guy in Pittsburgh wasn't affiliated with anyone. They're fascists and racists and neo-Nazis and anti-Semites uh, on the Internet. Right. And, and it feels like there's a million when they're attacking, you know, there's, you know, you, but you said something that I think is is right, is that you can block them all if you want to, and they'll go away. Mm. Because you can't block a movement that votes 37.4% for the Nazis in 1932, right? There's a small kind of very vocal uh, part of these. I think the difference between now and the past and why my knees aren't knocking about this every time I flip on the news is that everyone is heavy breathing about this. And I think that there's a certain amount of that that I think we should heavy breathe about because I don't want this stuff to ever take root in this society. But if you look back to the most, you know, terrifying moments in American history or in European history, we've talked about Europe too. The number of bombings, somebody mentioned, I think it was uh, Lachlan from the Daily Beast who mentioned, and I tweeted at him, uh, response, nobody responded to this. But he said, you know, this is Brian Burroughs' book. You should read this book. I know, Camille, you've read it, Days of Rage, about the Fantastic. far left's uh, madness that it in, in, enveloped the far left in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, too. Is it those were groups Right. There are bombs going off all the time in New York City, multiple bombs a day sometimes that were from, you know, Puerto Rican independence psychopaths. Right. The thing that reassures me in some way is that the, you know, drooling idiot in uh, Florida can do a lot of damage. That's absolutely true. Let's never forget that that's the truth. But he's a guy with stickers all over his van. He's not leading a groupsicle or a cell Send of pipe bombs to John Brennan at CNN. Exactly, yeah. mis misspelled in the wrong yeah. network. Right? Uh, yeah. Is that this stuff can kill people, and we never want to take our eye off of that. But in the 1970s, when you had like what in Germany is called the German Autumn, Deutsche Herbst, of like all of these groups of the revolutionary cells, that was one of them. Bader Meinhof, Red Army faction. In in Italy, you had Brigada Rossa, the Red Brigade. There's all these things that were, they're organized groups of numbers of people from Bill Ayers. And by the way, there are people on the right that do the same fucking thing that are neo-Nazis, et cetera. You know, these individual actors in a nation of 330 million people scare me less. Does, and again, please do not take this out of context to suggest that I don't think this is a danger. It's a massive I 100% agree with you. And it's possible that the, we, these events might feel more acute because they are occurring at a time of historically low criminal violence. It's mm -hmm. not like the 70s and the That's 60s. actually a good point. It yeah. was a fantastic amount of criminal violence. Yeah. This was just sort of integrated into our daily yeah. experience. And I think the left is a little closer to mass organized political violence now than the right is because before you had those weather underground campaigns, the Puerto Rican independence, what have you, you had a public conversation on the left about the extent to which politics, as we understand politics to be, is effective. Uh -huh. And you're beginning to see that conversation now. Is Absolutely. politics as we understand politics yeah, yeah. to be, which is to say policy, boring legislation, cloture votes, the kind of stuff that constitutes actual <laughs> politics with 
existential society wide stuff, culture wars that cannot be addressed by politics. The mm-hmm. right is very, very much a problem here, too, because they have overinterpreted what politics is capable of and ex- the extent to which politics can affect certain things. And so when you have that conversation begin to spill out in the open and you had you could follow it in real time in the 1960s and 19, early 1970s, which eventually spawned the weather ground in this offshoot that that embraced revolutionary activity. I think you're going to start to see that conversation happen, particularly in the event that we see Democrats underperform at the polls in November or mm. God forbid Democrats underperform at the polls in 2020 because they will view the electorate as ratifying the kind of antithetical racism, um, anti-American bigotry that has shut them out of politics at historic rates. I mean, we're, we're seeing them claw back, but Democrats are at a position now in, in electorally that they haven't been since 1928. And they will begin to see politics by normal means as ineffective. We saw a taste of that, I think, during the debate over Brett Kavanaugh, which was this is going to affect our lives in a way that politics cannot change, that this is going to be extra political, that he is going to take away our right to, to abortion rights and our right to health care and what have you, and, and became detached from reality, but it was also sort of this this way in which they were working themselves mm-hmm. up in the circular self-reinforcing conversation. Uh, and and while I don't want to overinterpret the problem and over-exaggerate the scale of the problem, I also think we need to address now how to stop where I think it can go because I think it can get there faster than than we realize. So one one quick, quick, uh, tiny point on this is that the uh, Badr-Meinhof organization, Red Army Faction, and the revolutionary cells in those groups called themselves APO, which was extra-parliamentary organizations. Mm. That was what they were called in mm-hmm. Germany in the 1970s, is that we're beyond politics because you people can't accept and understand that this is just an extension of fascism and we it has to be destroyed and you're not, you're not capable of doing it. So we're extra-parliamentary organizations. Well, this is the question that I have. When I think about my own concerns since the election, they're very different than everyone else's. The dominant narrative as it concerns Donald Trump amongst people on the left is that he is the personification of every retrograde notion about race and bigotry and discrimination that they that they hate. All of their most sacred values are in jeopardy. In fact, with the Kavanaugh hearing, I think this is a, a, a fantastic example. Whether or not Kavanaugh wins is actually a vote on whether or not women matter whether right. or not we care about rape in this country <laughs> right. and and whether or not we are immediately criminalizing abortion. That blurring of the line between what Trump and Trumpism is and what Trump and Trumpism is imagined to be by people who oppose it is something that I think is important. And I wonder about the the role of national conversations about our politics in helping to ratify the notion of Donald Trump as the uniquely dangerous personification of evil rather than someone who does, in fact, lie every day. He lies every day. Sure. I think politicians tend to lie. He lies in ways that are he lies in ways that are a bit more obvious and flagrant. There's no doubt about that. He's certainly less eloquent about it than others. But when you call a a military attack, kinetic military action and suggest that, oh, well, it's not really the same no, here's thing. The thing. Here's the thing. Well, motherfuck you. Because, I, I wrote columns for the New York Post and the Orange County Register uh-huh. uh, um, 
one uh, in 2004 and one in 2012. So when presidents, uh, both presidents uh, at the time were up for re-election uh-huh. and the columns on both of them were, don't re-elect this guy because he lies. Yeah. And so it's a bit frustrating for me to hear um, people say, well, when talking about Donald Trump's lies, to say, well, the other guys lied too. Like, yeah. And what I did when they lied is to say, these motherfuckers <laughs> lied. That's terrible. Yeah. You shouldn't lie. Stop yeah, yeah. lying. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. Lie, lie, lie. He, Agreed. He had a, a, a tweet this morning about how the caravan is filled with gang members and sure. and, and, and pos- I think possible Middle Easterners, something like this. Did he, he tweeted that again today? This morning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, he's, it, been, he's been on that for some time now. Filled with lies. Yeah. All the time. And the, these are lies that serve to to create their own narrative, if we're using narrative over and over again. Um, it's, it's, it's the narrative, not just that these people are bringing in disease and they're bringing in danger and it's an invasion, which yeah. is his word, invasion. Um, uh, but, uh, but also that Democratic politicians, his opposition, the narrative that he's pr- providing to describe his sense of politics is that Nancy Pelosi and everyone else, they want to give shelter to MS-13. Yes. So that that's that narrative in that direction. And it's crazy balls. I mean, look at Lou Dobbs every single day, the the highest performer on Fox Business Network. Yeah, yeah. by far. Yeah. I mean, we have to watch it when we're in the green room at Kennedy's, although thankfully that they've been separated by an hour now. So we don't have to do that so much. Is it the highest performer on Fox Business? Has been for a long time. Wasn't when we were there. No, well, of course, because I mean, come on, look at sorry, <laughs> kicking ass. Uh, no, it has been since the election because he's gone full Democrats and hashtag MAGA unironically every single day. Yeah, uh, and just uh, talking crazy pants all the time. How many people? How many people in uh, prominent people in the conservative media? And you're right, uh, Michael, to point out that the Weekly Standard has been good pointing this out. Um, talks about the false flag operation. Um, in in uh, terms of the the pipe bomb thing, like that, uh, pipe uh, bomb uh, far too many, a lot, uh, a, a lot. lot, it's a lot, a lot of people, a it's lot, a lot yeah. of, of them uh, did that. So, b- b- by the way, and I just want to point out on this is that you have to be especially stupid to do that when you're a journalist <laughs> and you know that you have about forty eight hours to prove whether you're right or wrong. I don't like those odds, and and these are people <laughs> that I maybe this is what Donald Trump has emboldened. These people that don't give two shits about being wrong. I would be chastened. I'd be humiliated. I would try to walk it back. I would do everything under the sun to say, good God, I, I, that, I was wrong about that. These people just barrel ahead. The Lou Dobbs, I mean, this is the true idiocracy that we're in now. But I don't, the, the thing that I think is slightly different than most people. It. I'm sorry. I'm no, no, you're fine. But it's a very quick thing is that I think that the, the, the one difference between me and I think a lot of people when looking at the idiocracy of the people like Lou Dobbs, who's just, I, I don't know if he's dumb or sinister or both, but he seems to be <laughs> both. Or, yeah, I, he's like, I mean, the guy's a moron. I mean, to, to watch his show is to have, you know, chunks of my brain removed by the television and <laughs> vaporized in front of me. I, I don't know what it is, but, but, but the thing is, I don't believe this is what's inspiring people to make dumb political decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you know, the Vietnam War was very popular most, people aren't watching most of the time that the Vietnam War was being waged. Yeah. People don't remember or realize that. Richard Nixon was in the throes in the early stages of Watergate in 1972, and he lost one state. That was Massachusetts, George McGovern. I mean, in, in, in by the way, separate from Watergate, he was not prosecuting this war in Vietnam in a way that was like, oh, yeah, we're winning here. It's going to bring people are idiot, 
idiotic when it comes to to, to politics. And I think we've, we we reached this time in sort of modern political history that because we're enveloped by it with talk radio, dumb podcasts like ours, uh, to, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, cable news, etc., uh, Twitter that, you know, and these memes on Facebook that are stupid. Like if we had just got rid of these, <laughs> we would be living in a golden age of very smart voters. But, uh, I don't non fucking <laughs> sense. Can, can we quick, quickly though? I, I think the, the sixties and seventies and Vietnam thing is kind of important because what did that lead to? It led to this great disillusionment. It, it needs to take yeah. what Noah was talking about, right? That's why the left went crazy um, because they felt like they'd reached a dead end, especially when, you know, they, they uh, faced such massive defeats in 72. And remember, 72 is the first time that 18-year-olds could vote, right? Yep. The youth vote was supposed to come in and sweep it all away. And they saw this. And boy, a lot of people got nihilistic. You think about Brett Kavanaugh, like we should get rid of the Supreme Court or whatever. goddamn yeah. crazy thing. The Constitution, let it rip it up because we didn't get the thing that we want. Um, that's what people were doing back then. So th- I think this also maybe gets to what Camille is trying to ask of Noah, um, which is, what do you do from from a position of like trying to persuade people? I did ask that, didn't I? I think <laughs> one of the problems that, tried and that the Noah Rothmans of the world, I think, need to address better. And I don't mean Noah, actually. I mean Max Boot. I you mean, mean Noah in particular. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sitting right here. Guys. I, yeah, I know. But <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as irritated by your writing on, on this subject as I am with Bill Crystals, with Max Boots, with some other people, which is or with uh, some politicians like John Kasich, who are up in high dudgeon about all this stuff. There's a reason why people got disillusioned. Address those reasons. Address your, uh, and again, I don't mean Noah Rothens, but, you know, maybe I do. Um, (laughs) Address your own, what did you learn at the great disillusionment? Did you do something? Did you advocate for something that turned out to be a bad idea? I would just say David Frum, who I disagree with quite a bit, actually is somebody in that universe who actually has addressed these issues. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of um, sort of stagnant wages, immigration, et cetera. I mean, David's I'm tried. Sure wrong about uh, Look, I think David's wrong about a lot of things. I, I like David a lot. You know, per- personally, I've known him for years. He's, he's, he's a, I think he's an honest broker. He's been an immigration hawk, though. All he's been, been an immigration hawk a long time. So those issues are not too difficult for him to address when Donald Trump brings them up. But, you know, he has, some people have tried to. Just, I, I think that people like Tom Nichols, Max Boot, et cetera, um, I don't think that they're wrong in the long run that this guy's bad for America and this guy being. Donald Trump, uh, but I'd like. I think you're right. I mean, yeah. uh, what, uh, yeah. what's his face? Yeah. Rick Wilson. I, I interviewed him a, a couple of weeks ago, and and he talked about his own complicity. Granted, he's selling a best-selling book, so he can yeah. get away with saying that. But like in uh, in creating uh, attack ads, which he said, uh, and Camille probably won't agree with Rick Wilson's own uh, uh, depiction of this, that he knew that he was uh, uh, playing to the base quasi-racism of the Republican base, and he feels guilty about that now because he thinks that that they were sort of like stoking a... But Noah, uh, Noah, Noah you work at, at, at a magazine that was kind of an early never Trump conservative magazine real early. Um, and had a bunch of cover stories. And I think there was a, a, a certain amount of understandable confidence in those cover stories that this was somebody that was going to be dispatched pretty quickly. Actually, I would correct you. Um, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Among one of our, I think one of our, my proudest moments is August, September, I think of 2015, really early in the Trump phenomenon, we did an issue called Shake taking Trump seriously. 
um, which but nobody was doing, which uh, analyzed his policy pronouncements and had a bunch of experts opine on them and projected what they would actually result in. There's a reason why we haven't seen just about anything that Donald Trump campaigned on actually evinced in the real world because <laughs> it's just unfeasible. Um, but we 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 did try to take this phenomenon this year. While we did think he was going to not win a single vote. Um, we did actually attempt to take. So what, what does, and the question of you is that, is that you work at commentary. Um, John Potthardst is, is on MSNBC a lot. He's a never Trumper for sure. As is Noah. Uh, as is Noah. Um, you know, but not crystal, et cetera. Not unreasonable about it, but, but, but as a Republican administration, there's a lot to defend for people who are supportive of Republicans. But so what does, where does the never Trump movement go now when you have essentially full employment that resonates with people as a Mississippi Trump rally about a month ago. And that was brought up by everybody. And like, you know, it's a, it's a, you can't explain to people that presidents have very little control over the economy. They, they see the results. No one buys that. Yeah. No one buys that. They see the results. They're happy about it. They see him, you know, flicking the PC people and sticking a figure in the eye of these people. What does the never Trump movement, the intellectual vanguard of the never Trump movement do in 2018? Well, can I try to answer that by way of the persuasion question. That sure. I was going to go around the table with yeah. the questions that were asked briefly. So I, I struggle very much to reconcile motion with his hands. I, <laughs> spray the rest. Sweeping. So I, I struggle yeah. to reconcile the persuasion argument with what I think is the, 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 what makes conservatism a superior philosophy, which is its commitment to modesty and humility, that it understands that it doesn't have all the answers, that there are uh, billions of daily interactions that we cannot possibly fathom that make up the, the economic landscape that we understand today. And the central planners, the technocrats conceit is hubris. Dude, yeah, that's, uh, let's be honest. We're talking about libertarianism now. <laughs> I was just going to say. That ain't conservatism no more, bro. What well, conservative <laughs> believes that? That's some Hayek shit, man. That's, that's, not that's, my, that's my line. There, well, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll criticize you people. <laughs> that's um, racist. At the same, but, <laughs> but that is racist. Yeah. But persuasion um, isn't about transforming the true believer and, and getting him on your side. It is about getting the guy who is persuadable. And Donald Trump, I think, is persuadable. I don't think he has a single idea in his head that isn't about himself. The guy doesn't have an ideology. Sounds about right. So he he's all about successes. And populism, as I understand it, nationalism, as I understand it, ethnocentrism, protectionism, fails every time it's tried. And for a guy who's particularly interested in winning, that's a superior argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so while he's going to But do we have to wait for that failure? Yeah. Do we have to probably. do we have to sustain that <laughs> failure? Think, to, well, okay. what we're seeing right no, now. That's, that's a perfectly reasonable response. Yeah. Well, but because unfortunately, I, it's an academic argument until it's not right. Mm. And what we're seeing right now is the success of a pretty conventional Republican administration. Right. Honestly, I mean, they're not doing what they campaigned on. And that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm free to come home to a lot of what Donald Trump does, not what Donald Trump says, but what he does as president. Um and to the extent that Steve Bannons of the world are disillusioned with what has happened, that is more to, to my benefit. But we haven't tried what they advocated. They never got around to implementing it. So we haven't won this battle. It's just been postponed. Um, so I, I don't think we've, we've really engaged on anything that was... The, do, you think, do, you, do you think the Steve Bannons, and we've talked about him quite a bit... Um, I think I've told two of the people in this room that I got a rather pungent email from Steve Bannon a couple of weeks ago. So I'm not in the most, you know, happy pro Steve Bannon mode. So I won't say much about it. Not like last week. I was. I was it last week. It was a very. It was a very mean email. Um, but 
the Steve Bannon's ideology, which is very, very potent in Europe right now, because the migrant crisis is not a thousand people driving in a caravan from Honduras. This is a very real thing. You know, Sweden, a country of 9.5 million people in 2015, took in 169,000 migrants, the largest percentage per capita in EU history. So it's very real to those people. And it's not some like, you know, Steve Ducey talking about how many People have disease. It wasn't him. It was somebody. I don't want to. I don't want Brian Kilmeade. It was Brian Kilmeade. The diseases and that are coming in through the southern border, which will never never get to the U.S. There's something. I think Bannon sees that his ideology is more resonant in Europe now. Is there a future for Bannonism in the long run? In the U.S., I think there is in the long run in Europe, and one of the reasons I think that is that. We've, and I hope the piece that I've finished today does not give this impression, it probably will in some way, that the Europeans are listening to Bannon. Bannon Bannon's listening to the Europeans. Because mm. remember that Front National, where they've changed their name, the National Rally now they're called in France, were a political force and a potent political force in the 90s, prior to 9-11. Prior to all this stuff, they existed, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen, you know, was an outsider, but they they, they were doing quite well. Beat is the worm turned with them in the mid-90s. In mid-90s, right? And all this stuff that's happened in Europe is, you know, it's been a long time coming in a lot of places that have been, that have been it's been more popular for longer periods of time. It's a natural home for Bannonite ideology, right? It's not at the fucking talking about Julius Avola and these people that, you know, the alt-right ding-dongs love to pretend that they're intellectuals and talk about sort of, you know, Mussolini-loving writers in the early 1910, 1920. But as a, like as an ideology in the U.S., I just don't know if it can sustain itself because the the, the conditions are not really met. You know, Marxists always said, you know, in, in, in the 1920s in Russia, they, with the new economic policy was to force a capitalist society because they like, we, we need the capitalist stage to get to Marxism. They had to create it. Right. Cause they actually believed that it was a scientific kind of idea. And, and you know, they, they had to heighten the contradictions. One of my favorite dumb phrases of idiotic revolutionaries, but we don't have that at the moment. We don't have the conditions to heighten so much. I mean, look, that's what we thought. Thought, That's right? what we thought. But like at the same time, we looked at Europe and we talked about it this way. Youth unemployment in Spain is 40 fucking percent, whatever it is. We have like 3.8%. Well, there's wage stagnation. Like, come on, guys. So why so is what it happens, what happens yeah. when it when it blows? We've had well, that's the question. We've had a bull run on the stock market. We have 2009. We've had we've had economic growth since 2009. Yes. Uh-huh. It's been like 110. Like, but it's all, Noah's fucking point. It's the Noah's point it's is that going to stop. this stuff is not viable because trade is good. Trade benefits all of us. And, and, and if we're going to throw up these unbelievably stupid protectionist barriers, which every single economist left, right, and center disagrees with, it's going to have a bad effect. The interesting thing about this, and my point in a way, is that it's not having a bad effect now, yet we're still in America's populist moment. Europe is in a populist moment because they have high unemployment 
and they have massive amounts of immigration, and they have a change in culture, these cultural changes that they're not okay with. And they're nation states in ways that we are not. They're in, that's exactly right. So why is it that now in America, what do we have to see to get rid of this, and is it sustainable? These are big questions, right. of course. So there were ways you could mollify the, the, the hungry populist public when the bottom fell out of the economy in 2009, right? Because you could deficit spend and you, you we had a very low tariff system and you could drop interest rates to zero. Um, if the bottom were to fall out today, we are in the middle of a trade war. We're, we're taking, we're, we have running ridiculous deficits. We're, we're right now spending more than we're, than we're taking in by an extraordinary amount. Um, and uh, we have next to low interest rates. They're only starting to rise right now, but they really can't go very far. So we don't have any slack. So mm-hmm. if the bottom were to fall out, we really can't do any of the stuff, the Keynesian stuff, that you're able to do to, to you know, soften the blow for for that displaced public. So then you you sort of do become Europe, and then I'm you know I wouldn't rest on the the grand ideological uh, orientation of American you know egalitarian philosophy and its history and what have you history will return and there will be people in the streets demanding well that's actually an interesting point because we make we, we, we make a sort of error here and I'm making you know a big mistake here and only talking about Donald Trump and I and and the sort of Trumpian sort of ethno nationalist populist whatever you want to call it right. Uh, that is triumphant and so many Bill Crystals of the world are walking around D.C. with their head hanging their head and crying about this stuff. But uh, what we we are missing is, of course, the populist left. And, you know, this might be, if this bottom falls out of it, the great moment for the Bernie Sanders uh, totally. left to come in here. And, and uh, look, look, what happened in Sweden, this, I think is a really important point that nobody's talking about what happened in Sweden the election in September and there was elections, regional elections in Germany and Hesse that were two days ago. And what happened there? Uh, you know, off day, the alternative for Germany uh, was the enormous gains. The, the Angela Merkel's party is still, the, the CDU is still the biggest party. SPD, the Social Democrats, second biggest party. But what were the two biggest gains? The Greens and off day. Same thing happened in Sweden. Two biggest r- big rises in was the Sweden Democrats and the left party, which is the remnants of the Communist Party, which is a radical party in a different direction. We're seeing these polls and we tend, because we're talking is so obsessed, monomaniacally obsessed with Donald Trump, and I'm guilty of this too, is we tend to forget that, you know, it started in Greece. It started when we saw Golden Dawn, an explicitly neo-Nazi party, a racist party, an anti-Semitic party, gaining at the same time a Stalinist Communist Party. The Greek Greek Communist Party is a very aggressive, almost Stalinist party. They were the second biggest growth in in sort of, you know, it wasn't the Papandreou's of the world. It was these parties. And we tend to forget about that in America. We're talking about Beto O'Rourke and these things. Is that, no, the the Cortez, what are Ocasio-Cortez and these people, that's what you also have to pay attention to. The only place that there is a center is France, and it's a paper center. Yes. And, and, and this is a man, by the way, who has lost 10 percentage points of support in the past six months, 40 mm. odd percent. He's now 32 percent. Mm. It's unbelievable what has had happened to Macronism and the fact that the two biggest parties, Mélenchon in France and, you know, who is a fucking communist, a far left 
dirtbag who is now at what, 26% last poll, 25%? And Le, Le Pen is 27%. You have over 50% of the electorate in France that is either far left or far right. This is, you know, Steve Bannon is not going there giving people advice. Steve Bannon is going there trying to find advice. Well, I mean, we've, we've mentioned, I think, earlier the, the Brazilian election, which mm. today is Monday. So just yesterday, Bolsonaro won a victory there. And he's been described in all sorts of <laughs> incredibly scary ways. Uh, in By the way, all accurate. <laughs> well, well in, the, in the U.S. context, I think yeah. the thing that's most most commonly brought up is that he's sort of a tiny Trump, Trump of the tropics, uh, Brazil's Trump. Um, but I've seen a couple of pieces today. Um, one, um, Glenn Greenwald, I guess, published the video for The Intercept, but there have been some other uh, pieces as well that have talked about the degree to which that is that simply does not go far enough. And it, it makes me wonder about two things, both the degree to which, and, and interestingly, I, I bring this up because we were talking a lot about sort of the root causes of the rise of populism in various parts of the world right now, and this, these general trends towards it, and the degree to which, and I think Glenn points this out as do other folks, that a, a lack of trust in institutions, lack of confidence in their ability to help people, consistent and consecutive failures um, by sort of the establishment as perceived by the population. Um, But one thing (laughs) that Glenn said that I thought was pretty interesting was that the, the way in which Bolsonaro managed to win was not merely by appealing to people who believed all of the same kind of awful things that he does about certain things, but that there was a fairly broad coalition of people who were minorities, who are low income people, who sort of are at the margins of their politics and are voting for him. Um, Despite those most awful things, perhaps as some kind of a protest vote against the establishment and it made me wonder about two things. I mean, one, the, the degree to which the the folks in the United States have as sort of their mechanism for trying to understand the world beyond our borders. Like, well, we really dislike Trump, so he must be their little Trump. It's kind of the same. Um, but but also the degree to which that just general dissatisfaction with their politics leads to this bad outcome and that that dissatisfaction with their politics can can cause them to overlook some of the more disgusting or gross elements of these people who are running for office, which always makes me wonder about the degree to which those bad ideas are actually popular amongst folks, but also the degree to which there are these values that we all believe are generally shared. These, mm. these particular liberal notions about our rights and our freedoms and the things that ought that we ought to put our confidence that we ought to have confidence that this will be there that we all don't want government censorship but under the right circumstances we're willing to part ways with those things sure if we think it will give us an opportunity to overcome this new existential threat i think that's exactly right and by the way these policies and we can be specific about what they about what they are aren't necessarily popular it's like you can smuggle in bad, filthy, ugly policies, provided that you have a electorate and a population who's so beaten down, like the Brazilian electorate, um, that nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's not necessarily a validation 
of the worst things that Bolsonaro has said. It is a rejection of the fact that Dilma Rousseff and I mean, Lula de Silva, you can say that, you know, here's the thing. Glenn Greenwald, by the way, is very, very bright about this stuff. And I don't want to say I don't want to debate something that he knows a lot more about. He lives in Brazil. He's his, you know, partner is a political force in Brazil now. Um, force is probably an overstatement, but at the same time, you know, Paul Krugman knows a lot about American politics. It doesn't mean that he's right. Mm. Right. I mean, the fact that Glenn knows more than me about this stuff doesn't mean that he's right. (laughs) I will say that to see this in Brazil is what we have to remember about how fucking lucky we are in this country, that Brazil is the second largest country in this hemisphere. And if you've been to Brazil and you've seen the grinding, crushing poverty mm-hmm. in Rio, in Sao Paulo, in these favelas, is that if we would, if we, if that existed in our country, there'd be a revolution tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we be worrying about, you know, half-wit Nazis shooting up synagogues would be worried about that stuff too, but they'd probably be bigger. You know, I think Occupy Wall Street was annoying in 2011. <laughs> it would be positively violent. This is also a, a country that is is as the populist nationalist imagine America is. It's sure. a country that's been in recession for two years. Oh God. It's yeah. a country that has dysfunctional politics like we've never seen. Yeah. The last uh, two presidents have been p- p- in jail. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah. Is the, the, this is the indictment machine, and this happens, of course, in Argentina with Christina Kirchner. I mean, this is uh, the same thing as, I mean, we have indictments in Venezuela, but they're happening in the U.S. of uh, people that are affiliated uh, with more the, like New Jersey, let's say. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. They're affiliated with the regime. And, 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 and Our last one was not indicted. But that, <laughs> that, the lack but, of political instability in Brazil, though, does also seem to, the, the lack of political stability in Brazil yeah. does also seem to contribute to the lack of faith in the institutions and the belief that the that their politics has totally failed, which interestingly in this country, the the one of the rallying cries on the left is, well, we need to impeach this president in any in any way that we possibly can. And it's it's interesting. I mean, the parallels, the parallels that I that I start to perceive in various places are it's the it's the doomsayers on both sides. It's the populist nationalists who believe uh, that our economy has totally been hollowed out and all of the jobs have been shipped to China and the trade is the devil and that immigration to this country is going to destroy all of the jobs and there'll be none left for all of us, although I suppose they share some of those sentiments in common. Um, and similarly, on the other side, there are these rather extreme ideas about what's wrong with the country mm. at the most fundamental won't have basic a, level. We, yeah, we won't have a country anymore. Yeah. In, in a way, we don't have a country already because the wrong person is in power and we need to get him out. Ridiculous. Of Ridiculous stuff. There's uh, front people in the streets. It's that sensationalism on both sides that I find most distressing. And the, the reason, I suppose, I find myself not getting concerned about the race stuff in particular and the notion that there is an, an ethnic component to the Trump phenomena is because to the extent there is, he is the most bizarre white supremacist in the universe. One who 
routinely goes on television and says, the blacks love me. I love the blacks. I have a bust of Martin Luther King in my office. Look, here's Omarosa. Here's Kanye. I can't wait to bring Kanye and Jim Brown. It's into pretty my flimsy defense. Spend but five hours with them. We're going to no, flex it's, it all listen, over each other's faces. He, tell, trust me, if there were more black people yeah. that he could bring to the White House to talk to them, yeah. he would totally do it. Yeah. Most won't come. So instead, Rasmussen has helpfully been inventing some polls for them with 23% support among black people. Let's, let's quickly uh, address uh, where I, the better part of your argument was. Go going, for it. I, d- the, I don't know what bad part I made. No, it's not a bad <laughs> part. It's just like it's the it's the <laughs> end of podcast. Let's talk about race. Uh, yeah, oh, from Camille. Yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> oh, we didn't even get to Blexit. I, I I I dropped it in there. You weren't listening to me, yeah. but uh, it, was, it, was, it was explicit. Uh, no, just that low trust societies uh, always elect for bad, statist, populist, shitty, anti. Individualist yeah, sure. policies. So, what does the left have for us? Because they nothing, have nothing. The that's it. Trust right now, too. No, right. That, that, no, I'm, I'm, agree- <laughs> yeah. I'm vigorously agreeing with you. Is that is that that's a problem? This is a, a thing that I, I mentioned on when uh, last time I went on the uh, last two times I went on the Bill Maher uh, show, which is that like to say that that we're screwed, it's a coup, and all this kind of stuff. Like, no. Don't say Stop. that. You Stop. actually need to, if, if you really believe that, you might act differently, which is something that Moynihan has pointed out in this on this program. But another uh, uh, point is that you absolutely now is the time to redouble support for the best of what exists of American institutions. If you if you publicly advertise your lack of faith in institutions, mm. everyone is going to flee to the the racket that's going to protect them. And when they do that. Everyone's fucked. I, I will say, that if I think my final thought on all of this, and I can sort of slink back to Brooklyn and go to bed. Uh, but, but you know, I, I, this is the difference between myself and most conservatives, and most of the pe- people I meet at Trump rallies and have you know covering this stuff and, and going out and about is that they're very much pick a better country, America. Yeah, and like, but I and I kind of agree with them, right? <laughs> and I, I talk, talk, look at Brazil. I mean, you, you see the coverage of this election and the, the failure of a lot of people to point out that the man who won was almost murdered. He was stabbed mm. during that. That is some hot political rhetoric, right? The guy stabbed <laughs> and almost killed the front runner. I mean, we're not. I mean, imagine the Beto O'Rourke. Like uh, if Beto O'Rourke or Ted Cruz were almost murdered during the campaign, we would be, be a talking. Lot of we well on both sides, I think. <laughs> And we would be talking about the end of American democracy, right? I mean, my difference, I think, with conservatives, when I see that and I see the favelas and I see the man who won almost being murdered in the streets, stabbed, um, and saying that gay people are what he calls gay people, which is the repulsive things that he says about gay people and the repulsive things that he says about almost every political issue in Brazil, is that, you know, I am not pick a better country. I'm thankful, like, this is a great place to live because we're not that. But where I go one step different and one step maybe further is that England's great, too. Germany's fantastic. There's no, none of this happens in Germany. None of this happens in England. Sweden? Uh, Marxistic dystopia? No, it's a perfectly fantastic place to live. I don't want to live there. I have lived there. The taxes are too high. But I'm happy to have that debate and not the fact that kids are dying of cholera and the guy who's the front runner in the campaign is being sliced up in the street. Well, that's the conceit, though, of the social 
democratic left is that they mm. convince themselves that they're yeah. very uh, you know supportive of the kind of social democracy that you see in Europe, but the social stratification mm. and the class system mm. that yeah, that's that a, pervades Europe sure. would be rather distasteful to them, and I don't think they they really. I think that's on. exactly ex- exactly right. I, 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 I but. To be clear about this is that I like having those micro arguments and getting into the sort of minutia and the granular level of what's wrong with, you know, the social democratic way of ruling in Sweden. Whereas we talk about Brazil, Venezuela, it's all of these places. I mean, I see Trump, Trump, Trump saying talking about Venezuela is embarrassing to those of us who have cared about Venezuela for a long time, visited Venezuela, been denied visas to Venezuela recently like I have. Um, that it's not, this is like, you know, what Ted Cruz said, this is, I thought, I thought was disgraceful. What Ted, Ted Cruz said at the end of the debate the second debate with Beto O'Rourke, when they said this fucking dumb thing that the moderator always says, say something nice about your opponent. Go fuck yourself. This piece of shit, lazy, kind of provocative thing. And everyone says the same fucking thing every time. Stop asking the question. Beto O'Rourke says, he's, good, he's a good parent. I don't know if he's a good parent, but he, he's a good parent. Mm-hmm. Ted Cruz says, I think the same thing as a good parent. But then he says this really cheap thing that Republicans say so much these days. But he, you know, I also respect that he's so honest that he's a socialist and that he wants to destroy <laughs> America. Like, come on. Honestly, 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 this is what we're invoking Venezuela. You know, because I think what many people on the left in Latin America say, which is a thing that has to be reckoned with by American conservatives, is that, you know, there are a lot of social democratic governments in in Latin America. They're not all Venezuela. You you know, I mean, Michelle Bachelet, we can go down the list of that. There are places where where, you know, political opponents aren't in prison and people don't want for tampons, right? It's not all the same thing. And this is kind of this dumb, dirty base argument that it's all socialism, et cetera. I am happy that I live in this country and I would be happy that I lived in, in England, Norway, whatever. Mm. It's not that. Noah's, Noah was mouthing, the f- mouthing uh, not yet while you were saying <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's not actually yeah. true. And let's be honest, you wouldn't be happy living in England. <laughs> you fucking hate England. I was there for five days recently and I couldn't wait to get home. <laughs> we, we, we've been at this yeah. for a little while. Noah, maybe. But I love the brown hula hoops. They're delicious. <laughs> I love those. And I love pies. I love savory pies. I suspect you might have some closing thoughts for us. Tell, Tell me us about your we're, we're, and we're and also the commentary uh, commentary uh, podcast. Oh, oh, oh shit. shit. Yeah. Wow. I hope studio's we capture that fall, on the studio's falling apart. Yeah. So we do a, a podcast. It is uh, there's there's far fewer four letter words in that one than in this one. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, a lot sport. more fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we do a podcast over there. I write for Commentary Magazine. I'm on Twitter very much more infrequently than mm-hmm. I used to be because it's a uh, open sewer. It's uh, <laughs> just so bad. Yeah it's, yeah. it's really bad for you. And um, yeah, I have a book coming out, which we've spent a lot of time talking about. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for allowing me. To what is the name of the book? And, and give us a release date. Uh, unjust social justice and the unmaking of America. You can find it on Amazon right now and pre-order it. Unjust. Who, who and who published America it? America by Regnery coming out in January 29th. Okay, so a conservative uh, imprint, uh, Regnery. Conservative uh, imprint. Okay. okay. Yes. All right. Well, you know, and by the way, Noah, I, I have to say that I also barely tweet these days. I used to be a pretty ferocious uh, tweeter. I've noticed. And that. I, I just can't, I can't do it anymore. I don't care it's, anymore. It's horrible. For it's horrible and it's bad for my mental health. Yeah. Um, and I have mental health issues to begin with. <laughs> I was going to say, you have mental health? That's weird. I mean, There's I'm no being, I'm being gener- generous yeah. to myself. Yeah. So I do, uh, I do find the, the advice 
that I keep seeing people give about, oh, you know, if I find some people who you disagree with and follow them on Twitter, I don't know if that's good advice these days. I'm not no, no, no. I, I, I think like, it is because like I follow- a lot of the people that I disagree with, like when I follow them, it actually like makes me more upset and it like ruins my day. <laughs> yeah. And there are so many people that I disagree with. Who the fuck with, do you agree particular. with? It's okay. That's what I'm saying. Agree with. That's what I'm saying. Besides so Candace Owens. But if you like, live in I this I do not city. agree with Candace Owens. No. Candace Owens is stop my following enemy. I want it to stop. Stop it. I want it. it to stop and even saying her name. In fact, her name on this podcast, completely out, outlawed. It's bad. can't do it anymore. Can't do it. Are you gonna it makes this, me sad. You're gonna bleep this in post. Uh, yes, I'm gonna every time. Do you, do you know how many words. people Camille? It, it, how many people ruin Camille's day that have nothing to do with politics? <laughs> Motherfucker gets on the subway and he's like, "Oh, the plebs! I can't do it. Is there a first class?" I'm like, "No, it's the MTA. Can't do it. He doesn't need Twitter. It's the truth. The, the, in New York My City is, so is raging a jihad yes. against Camille. An egalitarian jihad <laughs> every single day." You're one of us. Oh, we're all equal. It's, no. I'm first, goddammit. I'm sick of this shit. We're going to end right there. I'm gonna cut Thank it you for listening. Thank you, Noah Rothman. Yes. You're a great guest. You're a brilliant guy. Read him by the book. I hate all of you. Bye. 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 <laughs> we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. Yeah, I don't have any jog. I don't you want to talk about Blexit? Well, I mean, no, I don't want to talk about fucking Blexit. <laughs> <laughs> so depressed. Look at it. Just fucking sad.